It is a delight to be with you this morning. Uh, this is a great time for me to participate in the uh, one Wellspring event that I get to participate in. And I'm very thankful to be able to bring uh, to you a letter this morning from Jesus. I would like to turn your attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 this morning. Have you ever been audited? Have you ever been part of a corporation that's been audited? Have you ever gotten a notice from the Internal Revenue Service? <laughs> Perhaps you've been placed under the microscope of the IRS or some auditing firm or some internal audit. Uh, maybe you've performed an audit. Maybe you've done so informally with roommates or friends or your household. What would it be like for the church to be audited? On what the church does, on what it believes. What would it be like for you personally to be audited? And I don't mean a financial audit, uh, not someone inspecting the books, the budgets, the payroll, or regulatory compliance, but spiritually. To get a rundown on how things are going for you spiritually, theologically, devotionally. To come under the scrutiny of one who knows intimately the ins and outs of your church. Or the ins and outs of your heart and life. What would it be like for Jesus to evaluate Grace Bible Church? What would it be like for Jesus to evaluate your own life? This is exactly what happened in the first century. There were seven churches in Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey, who received personal audits from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at one of those this morning, and there are uh, any of them that we could have looked at. You have been at Grace Bible Church and in Wellspring remarkably equipped with sound doctrine, with uh, that wonderful toolbox, with so many things. I think if there is a church that most echoes perhaps the situation of ladies in Wellspring at Grace Bible Church, it is probably Jesus' audit of the church at Ephesus. There are churches that he sends letters to that are suffering under persecution and need encouragement. There, there is a church of um, the Laodiceans, which is at risk of being removed as a church because it has grown cold-hearted and lukewarm. But the church at Ephesus is a church that was remarkably equipped, well-endowed. It had a remarkable opportunity to have a, a serious pedigree of pastoral leadership. Um, from the prominent founding members of the church, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, to the Apostle Paul, who spent three years there on his third missionary journey, to his protege, Timothy, the pastor, uh, who was first there in A.D. 65, and a second time there from A.D. 67 to 68 A.D., at the very least, as he pastored the church and other churches in the region of Ephesus. And then the Apostle John, who beginning in 66 AD was a pastor in that church and pastored over several of the churches in Asia Minor. We know a little bit about the church at Ephesus, and we get to see Ephesus over several generations. It was 35 years since Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians that they received this letter from Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. That's a remarkable picture and an opportunity to see what happens to a church over time, especially a church like Ephesus. We know that in Acts 19 and 20, the church at Ephesus was birthed under persecution. The gospel came and people believed, but immediately there was satanic opposition to the progress of the gospel there. You have the uh, demonically infused seven sons of Sceva who openly uh, go against those who are bringing the gospel. You have Demetrius, the silversmith, who caused much harm to the cause of the gospel. And yet the Ephesian church flourished and grew. I want to turn your attention to the book of Ephesians for a few minutes. And let you see the kinds of things that they benefited from. In Ephesians 1 through 3, I won't read all, all three of those chapters, but uh, you know that they were grounded in sound doctrine. A high view of God and a right view of man, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the church. Ephesians has one of the greatest pictures of what it means to be a part of the local church. This was a, a mature 
grounded body of believers. In Ephesians 4.14, they're encouraged in this way. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. They were taught discernment. They were taught discernment from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Don't believe everything you hear. The Ephesian church would not have gone into the local Christian bookstore and bought everything off the shelves and devoured it undiscerningly. They were closed-minded in the good way to be closed-minded. They were adhering to the sound doctrine of God's word. And not open to every wind of doctrine that blew around. They were taught to walk differently than the world around them. Ephesians 4.17 Paul says, So I say this, and I affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. Uh, They were taught to be different than those around them. In Ephesians 5, 6 through 11, we get this instruction. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But instead, even expose them. You see, the the Ephesians were taught from the very beginning. To not be what they used to be. And to be different than the pagan world that surrounded them. The church at Ephesus was also the recipient of Paul's two letters to Timothy. First and second Timothy were written to him while he pastored at the church at Ephesus. And so in first Timothy chapter five, we hear this instruction. I'm sorry, first Timothy chapter one, verse five. Paul says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So Paul grounds the Ephesian believers, number one, to pursue love. And the goal of all of their teaching is love. And there will be false teachers who try to teach them other things. Watch out for them. In fact, First and Second Timothy are full of instructions about false teachers that may come into their midst. First Timothy 1.18, Paul writes to Timothy, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then he names a couple of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. From the very beginning, the church at Ephesus had been instructed not to fall away from Jesus. And they had examples of some who had already done so. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You see, over and over again, the church at Ephesus had been warned, hold on to the truth. Don't fall for false teaching. Be discerning. Hold on to sound doctrine. And then you have the very severe warning in Acts chapter 20. This is Paul's, uh, when he, at the time, he believes his last interaction with the elders of the church at Ephesus. You just heard Scott teach through Acts chapter 20. If I can find it, I'll read it to you. Acts 20, verses 28 to 31. This very sober warning to the leadership of the church at Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. You feel the urgency and the warning from Paul. 
to the leaders of the church to watch out, to, to suspect that there would be people even from amongst themselves who would lead others astray. Put yourself in the shoes of the Ephesian believers, grounded in the truth, equipped with sound doctrine, warned against false teaching, told to be different than the world that surrounded them. What do you think their mentality might be? I think if I was at the church at Ephesus, I might build a bunker, dig a moat, put up walls, build large machines that threw darts at the enemy as they approached (laughs) approached the fortress. To hide in the inner sanctum of the bunker and not let false teaching get anywhere near me. To have a suspicious eye towards everybody around me inside that bunker. What are they going to say next that's wrong, theologically? It's possible to miss Jesus in a pursuit of truth. It's possible to abandon what you should love most in your pursuit of the things that are inherently good, but not the best. What is Jesus' evaluation of the church at Ephesus? How do they do in Jesus' audit as he assesses them 35 years after the book of Ephesians is written? Well, we'll look at that. We'll look at Jesus' evaluation of the church at Ephesus in six elements. There's a salutation, that's a greeting. There's a commendation. There's a confrontation, a command, a plea, and a promise. Those are the six elements of Jesus' audit we're going to look at this morning. A salutation, a commendation, a confrontation, a command, a plea, and a promise. If you didn't write all those down, I'll say them again. So... The first element of Jesus' evaluation of the church is his salutation. Uh, It's a fancy word for a greeting, but it rhymes with the others, so we'll go with salutation. Uh, Will you read with me in Ephesians? Sorry, I'm going to say that so many times. This is a letter from Jesus to the Ephesians. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write... The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. This is Jesus' greeting to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the center of Asia. It was the most prominent city. It was a very populous city. It was the center for the evangelism in the church among Asia. Again, that's modern Turkey today. It's the first city that you would come to in all of Asia. There were four Roman roads uh, in the city of Ephesus, and all Roman officials were required to pay a visit. If you went anywhere to any of the cities in Asia Minor, you were required by law to stop in Ephesus. It was the center of commerce and games. They had a 25,000-seat stadium. They had a seaport, and they were considered the marketplace of Asia. It was also a religious center in Asia, It was the center of the worship of Artemis, Artemis or Diana. She was the uh, goddess of fertility. And so to worship in the temple of Diana, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world, uh, 160 or 127 marble pillars, uh, 36 of them totally encased with gold and jewels uh, inside this uh, columned building. You had this inner sanctum, an asylum. Where if you were, uh, you know, one of the FBI's most wanted, if you were on Interpol's top ten list, you could go hide inside the inner sanctum of the Temple of Diana and be untouchable. Uh, It was a a refuge for the worst of the worst criminals. Uh, There was a a giant tree in the middle of the uh, the temple, and and this tree of, of life and fertility was the symbol of safety and provision. Uh, from the goddess Diana. And Ephesus was the center for the worship of Diana. Uh, It was one of the the prized possessions of the entire city was this temple. And it was 
characterized by cult prostitution and rampant idolatry. The immorality that uh, centered around the temple flooded throughout the streets of the rest of the city. The immorality of Ephesus was world-renowned. In addition to the cult to Diana, uh, there there were two temples dedicated to emperor worship. Uh, The Roman emperors had begun to declare themselves to be God, even declared themselves to be savior of the world, and demanded worship. And you had to pay every year uh, your token tithes to the emperor, and you had to perform your sacrificial religious worship uh, to the emperor as God. And Ephesus, uh, as an important Roman city, had two temples to the emperor. So Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus. And in each one of these letters to each one of these churches in Asia, Jesus references the vision of himself that he gave to John in chapter 1, and he makes reference in these letters to something geographical or, or some feature of each one of these cities. We'll see this in Ephesus as well. In contrast to everything the Ephesians would have seen every single day in their city, Jesus reveals himself in chapter 1. Read with me Revelation chapter 1 beginning in verse 9. I, John, that's the Apostle John, the same one that wrote the Gospel of John and 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Uh, This is probably A.D. 95 at this time. And so John is an old man. And he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus... I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, John was exiled. This is like the Alcatraz of the ancient world. He's out on a rock, which is a prison in the middle of the sea. He can't get out. He's by himself. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's a remarkable vision. John gets to see Jesus uncloaked. And think about the last time he saw Jesus. It would have been, think about the the, the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, Jesus would have had the appearance of a, a normal human body. John even reclining against Jesus' chest as they, as they laid around the table, they didn't have chairs. Uh, they would recline on the floor around the dinner table. And John, intimate, close, he was even called by Jesus the one whom Jesus loved. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. There was a close bond and affectionate friendship between these two men. Except that one of these men was God in the flesh. And here in Revelation chapter 1, you have the flesh peeled back and John gets to see Jesus in a way he's never seen him before. And he falls down before him as a dead man. I mean, his voice sounds like Niagara Falls. And his face looks like the sun shining in its strength. And his eyes are on fire. And John is terrified. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. Echoing words that Yahweh used of himself in the prophet Isaiah. 
He said, I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am now alive forevermore, and I have the keys and the power over death. So write. And John writes at Jesus' command this book of Jesus' revelation of himself. And the first part of that is a a seven-letter audit of the churches that John oversaw. Which I think this would be a comfort for John. He had been separated by his imprisonment, no longer able to care for his people. What does he learn here? Jesus cares for his people. Jesus loves his church. And so as Jesus addresses the seven churches, he begins each letter with a salutation identifying himself with some aspect of the vision given in chapter 1. What is that aspect here in the letter to Ephesus? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Okay, Jesus referring back to that vision. What, what are these lampstands and what are these stars? We get this from chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, you saw them in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. What does that mean? Each one of these churches had an angel. Um, Some have taken angels here to mean simply a messenger, i.e. the the local pastors who brought this message, or maybe even the postman who brought the letter. Um, I tend to think that what Jesus means here is angels. This would elevate our view of what goes on in church. There is a supernatural reality, a heavenly reality beyond what we do on a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night in your small group. Uh, This is not just mechanical human things that happen in the local church. Um, But Ephesus had a church with its name on it. I'm sorry, had an angel with its name on it. And what does Jesus say? The lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands are the seven churches. Um, that'll be very important uh, at the end of this letter. There's a picture here of Christ's possession of the churches. It is Jesus who walks among the lampstands, who tends them, cares for them, inspects them. He knows what takes place in his churches. This is a picture of Jesus' presence among the churches. This is also a picture of Christ's ability to remove the lampstand. Of the seven churches that are described here, that are written letters to, the first and the last, Ephesus and Laodicea, are both threatened with the removal of the lampstand. If they fail the audit, you don't get to be a church anymore. And Jesus is the one who owns these lampstands and has the power to remove them as lampstands. Jesus is present, sovereign, and concerned in and among his churches. And fundamentally, he is the light that the lampstands are to display. You realize the church is not the light. You know, we, we don't often have lamps and candles, but uh, think about your lamp and the light bulb. Right? You can have a really pretty lamp, and if the light bulb's not there, it's pointless. It's useless. That is Jesus' salutation to the church at Ephesus. The second element of Jesus' evaluation is the commendation. And we see this in verses 2 and 3 and in verse 6. There's some good news for the church at Ephesus. There are some things they've done well, some things they've done right. And Jesus wants to let them know that He knows. Notice in verse 2, He begins, I know. I know. And here's His commendation. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. That you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. In verse 6. And this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. How does Jesus commend this church? What are they doing right? First of all, their deeds. Uh, that is, their life and conduct are in keeping with Christ's likeness. What you're doing is good. You're doing the things I've asked you to do. I know them. And he says your toil, that is a a word for an all-out effort to the point of exhaustion. Listen, they've been working hard. They, They have not been a lazy church. And he says, I know your perseverance. That is a courageous acceptance of hardship and suffering and loss. 
Listen, you can imagine if you were in Ephesus and your church was birthed under persecution and you lived under the shadow of the worship of the emperor and the worship of Diana and you were therefore excluded from the cultural activities of the world around you, from the social strata of the city in which you lived, you would be seen as outcasts, possibly even persecuted and disallowed from marketplace activities, uh, some churches in Asia were, or the Christians in Asia were not allowed to work. In some cities, if you did not pay homage to the emperor, you couldn't get a certificate that allowed you to be employed. And Jesus says, I know your perseverance. I know your suffering and your loss. And I know your intolerance. Here, intolerance is a good word. Uh, they are not tolerant of evil men. That is, the church at Ephesus had an ongoing inability to bear with false teachers. And they're commended by Jesus for this. And there was trouble outside of the church, from the seven sons of Sceva to Demetrius to the angry mob in Acts 19, to the temple of Artemis or Diana, to the emperor cult, to the Jews in Ephesus. You see, the Jews had special privileges under the Roman Empire. They were not required to worship Diana, the local god goddess, and they weren't required to worship the emperor. Uh, they, they got an exemption from that. Um, but nobody else did. So the Christians were seen as a sect of Judaism until the Jews said, uh-uh, they're not part of us. And they desynagogued Jewish Christians. So now the, the, the Christians are orphaned. <laughs> they're not under the protection of the exemption being Jewish. <laughs> And they're exposed. They're exposed to the persecution from outside the church. And then you have the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were those who had begun to to infiltrate the church. Uh, They were those who said, you can still call yourself a Christian and participate in the sexual immorality of the city. That's okay. You're forgiven. Um, you, You still get to be an Ephesian and a Christian. It's very possible that the Nicolaitans get their name from Nicholas, one of the original uh, proto-deacons in Acts chapter 6. So there's trouble outside of the church threatening the church. There's also trouble inside. There are false apostles, deluded, self-deceived deceivers. And they're not claiming to destroy Christianity but to offer a new version of it, an updated version. They're corrupting it from the inside. They are posers. They are the wolves that Paul warned about. They are false teachers. And Jesus says, I know your endurance and your perseverance for my name's sake, in verse 3. This is a paradoxical commendation. You have toiled to the point of weariness, and yet you are not weary for my name's sake. The Ephesian church had practical holiness and theological discernment. They were uncomfortable with compromise. They suffered for the name of Jesus. They were exhausted in their loyalty to Christ, but they were not exhausted of their loyalty to Christ. They were a mature, established, tested, and seasoned body of believers. Jesus commends the church for these things. These are not bad things. These are good things, and Jesus gives them an attaboy. Thirdly, we see Jesus' confrontation, and this occurs in verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you. Can you imagine hearing Jesus say that? If Jesus got pulpit time on a Sunday morning at Grace Bible Church, came to Wellspring, said, I want to encourage you with things you're doing well, but I have something against you. Can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus addressed you personally and said, but I have this against you. This is the scary part of the audit. And what does he say? You have left your first love. You have left your first love. This word for left here is a very sad word. This is a definite and sad departure. It's the word that's used for divorce. Or abandonment. And what is this first love? What what is Jesus confronting the Ephesian church about? What is it that they've left? It it seems like the church is running on all cylinders. What are they missing? And Jesus says it is this first love. 
Many have offered explanations of what this first love is. Is this love for God? Is this love for fellow believers? Is this love for the lost? Have they lost their evangelistic fervor? By first love, I I don't believe that Jesus means here a love of first priority. Like, what do you love the most? I don't think that's what he's getting at. I, I think he means the love that you had at the first the, the honeymoon days of the church. Do you remember what it was like when you had a fresh memory of your own rescue? Air Florida Flight 90, a uh, couple of decades ago, took off from LaGuardia Airport in a winter storm and was never able to uh, achieve the speed it needed to fly very well. The aircraft stalled and plunged under the Ninth Street Bridge and then fell into the icy Potomac River. And nearly everybody on board uh, was killed or drowned, and several people on the Ninth Street Bridge were killed in their vehicles. Priscilla Torado uh, was one uh, person aboard the airplane who survived the crash and tried to tread water in the icy Potomac River. And a man, a file clerk in Washington, D.C., on his way to work, saw the accident, jumped out of his truck, kicked off his work boots, and swam into the river. You see, the rescuers had tried by helicopter and other means to give Priscilla a rope, and her hands were so cold, so numb, she could not grab the rope in order to be rescued. And so this file clerk jumped into the water and rescued her. What would it be like (laughs) to be Priscilla Torado? Would you ever forget? Would would your memory of that event fade? Or would you boast in your rescuer? Would that be the the, the singular memorable moment in your life that you would always look back to? I, I think she would probably always have fond affections for that file clerk who jumped in and rescued her. What about you? Do, you? do you remember the day you first believed? When you went from thinking Jesus was boring <laughs> or, or, or a tyrant or didn't exist to he's everything. And I can't believe that he loved me. I can't believe that he rescued me. I can't believe that he would look on my helpless state and while I was his enemy, die in my place. Do you remember those moments? Do you remember your rescue? (laughs) That is the first love Jesus has in mind here. What was it like for the Ephesian church when they first heard the gospel and believed? See, I believe Jesus has in mind a love that involves all three. A love for God, a love for fellow believers, and a love for the lost. They flow out of one another. What is the greatest command in all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament? Love God. What is the second greatest command? Love others. Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save the lost. And how is Jesus seeking and saving the lost? Through those whom he has loved, who then turn around and love others. You see, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. And that gets shed abroad. We love others because we love him. And we love Him because He first loved us. You see, this love originates in God, pours out into our lives. If you love Jesus, you will be drawn to love what He loves. Jesus loves His bride, the church. To say that we love God but we don't love our brother is to be deceived about our love for God. And if you love Jesus, you'll be drawn to love your neighbor. And according to Jesus, who is my neighbor? (laughs) Well, pretty much everybody. Love for the brethren, love for others, they flow out of love for Christ. If you notice that your love for others is waxing cold, that is an indication that your love for Jesus has gone cold. And if you love Christ supremely, you will love His bride. And if you love Christ supremely, you will not be able to help telling others about Him. You see, the best evangelists are not those with a great evangelistic plan. The best evangelists are those who just love Jesus. Can't get enough of Him. Can't stop telling others about Him. It's contagious. What does Jesus say about His church at Ephesus? 
that their love for Christ had gone cold. See, the Ephesian church was guilty of doing lots of work on their lampstand without paying attention to the light for which the lampstand exists. How good is a lampstand with no lamp? Hey, you've got a really nice lampstand there. You've been polishing that thing for some time. It's got a, one of those nice, what do you call the cover things? I'm not an interior decorator. A lampshade. Got a nice new lampshade. You know, um, where's the light bulb? I mean, you're left with a paperweight. You're left with a knickknack. You see, doctrinal purity, theological fidelity, suffering under persecution, all of those things are supposed to be a platform for the light of Jesus Christ to shine. They themselves are not the light. Your suffering for Christ is not the light. Your discernment is not the light. Your toiling for Jesus is not the light. That's the lampstand on which the light is to shine. Jesus is the light. And our love for Him can grow dim while we're busy doing all kinds of things for Him. Practical holiness, theological discernment, intolerance for compromise in others, uh, hunting down heretics. These things are not designed to be the fuel of a long-lasting church. The fuel of the church is fervent, personal love for God through Jesus Christ. There's a fourth element to Jesus' assessment of the church at Ephesus, and it's found in verse 5. This is Jesus' command. He says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. We're going to take a, a timeout right now, sort of halftime. We take halftime here, right? Okay, so this is a great opportunity to get up, get a drink, uh, do whatever you do at halftime, and, uh, and then we'll come back and look at Jesus' recommendations to correct this problem. So what is Jesus' correction? We come to His command in verse 5. He says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. And repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus says, first of all, remember. This is a present tense command. It is an ongoing reality. He basically says, keep on remembering from where you have fallen. You have fallen, and and you're in this fallen state. Remember where you fell from, and keep on remembering it. And he gives a second command, repent. This is a a more deliberate, decisive command to change the attitude, which results in a change of action. And he says, return. Another deliberate, decisive command, return to do the things you used to do when love for me was at the center. You see, the Ephesian church had allowed the fruits of love for Christ to replace love for Christ. Doctrinal fidelity, theological discernment, moral rectitude, uncompromising loyalty. These things all originated from love for Christ. But subtly, imperceptibly, they had replaced love for Christ. The blazing center of the Christian life was set aside by the fruits of that blazing center. And you know, it's easy to see how that could happen. A church is birthed in the gospel and everything is new. Brand new believers who love Christ. They burned their magic books. That was 50,000 days wages on fire in the middle of the city as a demonstration of their newfound love for their rescuer. They gladly faced rejection, persecution, isolation. You could see how if with joy... They just say, we don't want anything to do with the world. Over time, that's going to produce the feelings of isolation. Oh, wait a second. Everything we've left, we we really left it behind. And, And outside trouble would promote isolation and protectionism. This is where you build a moat, erect a wall, put some archers on top of the wall, and keep all the bad guys out. And then inside trouble... 
would breed skepticism and suspicion. Listen, if you've built this fortress against the world and you've been keyed in to be discerning about deceptions on the inside, you're going to be looking at other people in the castle and thinking, well, who's against us? Right? Who's the traitor amongst us? And pretty soon everyone's looking over their shoulder for someone who's going to compromise morally, someone who will teach something that's off theologically. And it's not long until a church begins to pride itself in its theological purity, its moral integrity, and its ability to discern error within and without. And the central thing, the thing that makes a church a church, the reason the lampstand exists, the fire and the light of Jesus, is no longer shining. A generation has gone by since the book of Ephesians was penned, and the church at Ephesus is in danger of going out of existence. The machinery of the church is still operating. The doors are open on Sundays. Sermons are preached. Songs are sung. Error is pointed out. Sin is exposed. Compromisers are run out of town. But the defining characteristic of a church, the defining characteristic of a Christian, is gone. Love has left the building. And this is no mere trifle. This is a fatal flaw. Notice the warning that comes from Jesus in verse 5. I'm coming to you. (laughs) This is not going to be an audit from a distance. And I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Jesus coming here is not a reference to Jesus' final return to the earth. Rather, this is an immediate personal corrective to be made by Jesus with the church at Ephesus. This isn't an end times return of the Lord here. He says, I'm coming for a visit to Ephesus and remove you as a church. You see, a church can't survive merely on what it is against. A church cannot define itself by what it is against. The church must be characterized, be defined by, and driven by love. Love is to be the lifeblood of the church. And if it is not, then the church at Ephesus can no longer exist. To be useful to Christ... You must be inflamed with love for Christ, or you will be removed from usefulness as a lampstand. And we don't get to define love any which way we want, or define love the way the world would define love, but we must stick with what Jesus has in mind here. This is a love for God that produces the kinds of things the church at Ephesus was good at. But those things can't replace the love itself. And so Jesus' plea here is in verse 7. There's a plea from Christ. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I confess, Friday nights, Channel 11, 7 p.m., I used to watch the Dukes of Hazard in elementary school. Dukes of Hazard, they talked to each other on the CB radio, and Crazy Cooter, every episode, would say, Hey, you boys got your ears on? He's saying, Are you on the frequency? Can you hear what I'm saying? Jesus here says, Do you have your ears on? He who has an ear, let him hear. Are you on the frequency? This is akin to what God says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually appraised. You have to have spiritual ears to hear spiritual truth. It's like the way Jesus introduces His parables. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Speaking to a, a broad audience, there will be some who understand what Jesus is saying because they're tuned in to the spiritual frequency. If you were trying to listen to an FM station and all you had was an AM radio, you could turn the dial all you want. You can turn up the volume all you want. You're never going to hear it. Uh, Jesus is addressing those who are His at Ephesus. And He makes this plea in each one of the letters. Are you on the frequency? This is designed to awaken the conscience of the faithful amidst the compromise of others. And... There is a universal application to all churches. You notice that in verse 7? He who has an ear, this is just general. We could at first just say, whoever's at Ephesus who can understand what I'm saying, listen up. But he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. 
So if you're at Ephesus and you hear what I'm going to say to the church at Laodicea or the church at Smyrna or the church at Pergamum, let him hear. And I think it's broader than that. Whoever can hear this, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you're reading this in Wellspring in May of 2015 in Tempe, Arizona, that's the other side of the planet. (laughs) And you can hear what I'm saying. Listen. And so in a sense, this is a letter to Grace Bible Church in the 21st century. And this letter comes with a promise. It's also found in verse 7. This is point 6 in your outline, the sixth element of Jesus' audit of the church at Ephesus. This promise, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes. Uh, what, what is an overcomer? This is the Greek word nikao. Uh, we get our brand name Nike from this. To, to overcome, to conquer. First um, John chapter 5 verses 4 and 5 tells us what an overcomer is. Same author. Uh, writing a letter just a couple pages to the left in your Bible, tells us that an overcomer is one who believes in the Son of God. An overcomer is a synonym for a true Christian. A genuine believer is, by definition, an overcomer. And Jesus says, to him who overcomes, he's saying, to you who are genuine believers. But he calls them overcomers because he wants them to know a truth. That a genuine believer will do the things He is asking here. We'll make it to the end. We'll persevere. We'll keep the light bulb in the lamp. We'll overcome. There's a comfort here for the Ephesian believers in the midst of a world of sexual immorality and false teaching uh, in a church that's potentially not going to be a church anymore with Leaders who would teach false doctrine. Uh, There's a comfort here that those who overcome, those who recover and maintain the purpose for which they exist as a believer and as a church, will receive this promise from God. What is the promise? You will eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about eternal life here. Uh, This harkens to Revelation 21 and 22, where the tree of life, that tree which uh, recovers the things lost in the Garden of Eden, but now permanentizes them, never to be lost again. Uh, That tree of life is the emblem in heaven, in the eternal city, uh, that God's people will live forever and ever and ever, and there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more dying, no more curse, no more death, for the old things have gone away. That is the promise he makes. And it's a promise that makes all the suffering, all the endurance, all the perseverance, all the toilsome labor, all the loyalty to Christ, all the intolerance of false doctrine, all the discernment, and all the cultivating of my affections for Jesus worthwhile. And at the same time, Jesus is taking a shot at Diana. Right there, the, the, Diana is emblemized by this tree of life. She was the goddess of fertility. And you could see what Satan does through the, through the false religions of the world to imitate and pervert God's truth. Listen, the tree of life is supposed to be a good thing. Satan takes it, makes it a wicked thing and an emblem of sexual immorality. And Jesus takes a shot at that. Listen, you live in a city that the whole world knows is emblemized by this, what Diana calls the tree of life. It's really a tree of immorality. Um, Jesus promises, I'll give you the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And it's not an asylum for the wickedest of criminals to go and hide with impunity and not ever have their sins addressed. (laughs) No, the, the paradise of God, tree of life, is an asylum for the wicked who have been declared righteous on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ himself on the tree at Calvary. How did the church respond? How how did the church at Ephesus respond to this audit from Jesus? What did they do with this? We we don't have a book after Revelation. We don't know from the Bible how they responded. But church history would tell us that Ephesus repented collectively as a church and functioned as a witness to the love of Christ for at least another generation. 
And Ephesus was a, a prominent city in ecclesiastical functions for church history for quite a long time. How long they kept a fervent, affectionate love for Jesus? At least another generation. Today, Turkey is a secular Islamic state with very little representation of Jesus. Has the lampstand been removed? Yeah, it has. A couple thousand years later, (laughs) how do we take this letter? How do we respond to Jesus' audit of our lives, of our church? I think there's some implications for us. Number one, don't be content with doctrinal error. Don't be content with doctrinal error. You don't take this message on love and then say, hey, if I'm going to love people, I'm going to throw out truth. (laughs) That's not how love works. That's not how truth works. The Ephesians were taught at multiple levels, um, speak the truth in love. What God has put together, let no man divide asunder. Right? Um, Paul even said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the goal of our instruction is love. So if there's a course correction, if, if the church at Ephesus has abandoned love, the correction to that is not to abandon truth. They were commended for holding on to truth. They were commended for being discerning. They were commended for sending out false teachers on their ears. You and I should not be content with doctrinal error. And you and I should not get comfortable with moral compromise. Listen, Jesus said, I hate the Nicolaitans. Those who had infiltrated the church and said that sexual immorality is okay. Because you're forgiven and you can be a Christian and participate in all the cultural, social uh, ideals of the city that you live in. That was not Jesus' message. So that was number two. Don't be comfortable with moral compromise. Number three, don't be naive about false teachers within the church. Well, you know, we just need to, we just need to love everybody so it doesn't matter what they say. Um, listen, if, if we love each other and if we love Christ, then we will care enough about what Jesus has said and about the people around us that if somebody comes in and leads them astray, especially to things that will lead them to eternal destruction then love doesn't mean we just let them go off a cliff. We follow Jesus' instructions. And number four, remember this, the church will be undone if truth loses out to false teaching or if holiness is replaced by immorality. You don't get to be a church anymore if the truth goes away or if the church is morally corrupt. But the message to the church at Ephesus And maybe the message to us is this. And I don't know what number of application we're on. You can make up numbers if you want. Doctrinal precision, moral rectitude, and heresy hunting do not in themselves define a healthy church. Dotting all the theological I's and crossing all the hermeneutical T's does not equate to healthiness. Hard work to maintain the fire of love for Christ in your heart... That's the center. We must not let the machinery of doing church overrun the primacy of doing love. It's much easier for a church to do programs than it is to maintain fervent love for Christ, fervent love for each other, and fervent love for the lost. Right, right. A church like any organization can, can get some talented people to, to spin plates on the top of poles and keep them all spinning and overrun people. And... Fail to shepherd their own hearts to meet with God on a daily basis. To fail to love the lost. As a church and as individuals, we must continually cultivate warm, affectionate, deep, personal love for Jesus Christ. What would Jesus say about Grace Bible Church? What would Jesus say about your own heart? your own life. I'd love to hear from you ladies this morning on how you might tie in this letter to the church at Ephesus with the wellspring purpose and disciplines. 
How do these things fit together? Do we answer questions in this class? Okay. First thing I think is it goes straight to the very, the very discipline of the heart, um, shepherding your heart. What are, what are some signs in your own lives that that love is dimming? What does it look like for you when that waxes cold? I think it's um, just my thought life, definitely. Um, fear might come in, um, anxiety. I think one of the wonderful things we were given in Wellspring was the um, this pamphlet, the transformation of man, understanding our mixed condition. I think that understanding our mixed condition and knowing how what forgetters we are and how the heart is a deceiver, most excellent of a deceiver, um, puts us on a um, kind of the, the defense so that we can um, just be serious about knowing what we need to do every day, not just read the Bible, but let it become, let it inform us. And when we understand that we are rescued, it increases our love for the Lord. Yeah, have you learned to draw a line between those things? If, if I'm faltering in my love for somebody horizontally, oh, that yellow flag, there's, a, there's something not right here. That's a, that's a good discipline to be in, in the, in the heat of a moment, to think, ah. Oh. What else? How, how else do the wellspring disciplines tie into this letter from Jesus? I think I'm the only one in the room that's that's an elder at Grace Bible Church. Um, but there's a relationship between your personal cultivation of affections for Jesus 
and the strength of this church. Um, and, and beyond today. And I pray beyond this generation. Um, and, and what you do personally, privately, with the Lord um, has an effect on those around you. Um, we go from shepherding our own hearts to cultivating those things in our home and those things leak out and then we intentionally take them outwards um, and, and that affects the church. Um, there, there is so much ministry that happens that we don't necessarily call ministry because it doesn't have a program and a name and somebody doesn't have a position with a badge. Um, but, but that's where the real life of the church happens. And uh, it can't happen if we neglect the first things. Sarah? Ladies, thank you so much for letting us participate this morning.